Hello and welcome to the Hinterviews podcast with Peter Hinton, produced by the National Arts Centre English Theatre and coming to you from the Panorama Room of Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. I'm Sean Fitzpatrick. Welcome to the third interview of the NAC English Theatre's 40th anniversary season. In each episode, we will take you into the intimate world of the artists and creative minds behind the productions on stage at the National Arts Centre English Theatre. In them, artistic director Peter Hinton chats with a guest artist associated with the production. In this interview podcast, Peter speaks with David Dean, company historian for the NAC English Theatre, about England during the time in which Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol, which ran in the NAC Theatre from December 8th to the 27th. For more information about the NAC English Theatre Company's production of A Christmas Carol, please visit nac-cna.ca, click on English Theatre. And now, here are Peter Hinton and David Dean. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this afternoon's interview. I'm Peter Hinton, thus the uh, very clever title of this series. And um, the interviews are uh, an event we do on the first matinee of all of our shows, where we give an opportunity to introduce to you someone part of the team of the production we're doing, and uh, talk a little bit about the show. And... um, Before I invite you to join with me in welcoming our very special guest today, I want to tell you a little bit about him. Uh, Our guest today is David Dean, and David Dean is our company historian. And David, he researches on political culture and society in early modern England, national identity in museums, and performances of history in museum, museums, film, and on stage. He a, a, was a lecturer in history at Goldsmiths College, University of London, for 11 years before coming to Carleton University as a visiting associate professor in 1995. He became a full professor in 2000 and has held research fellowships in London and Cambridge and received grants from the British Academy SSHRC, affectionately known as SHRC, and UNESCO. He's written on subjects ranging from visual representations of Elizabeth's Parliament and England's first state lottery to controversies in Australian and Canadian museums. Over the past four years, he's been working with the National Arts Centre English Theatre on our research and development program, The Ark, The Snow Show, The Great Frost of 1608, and the Scottish play, (laughs) and at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival on Shakespeare's universe and the taming of the shrew. He's now our company historian working with us both on A Christmas Carol and Mother Courage and Her Children. Please join me in welcoming David Dean. Welcome. Um, 
Okay, that's a pretty daunting resume <laughs> to read out there. And um, who is that person? Who is that person? David, what is your interest in theater? And it's a it's a unique thing having a historian that participates in the creation of theater. What is your love of theater? What are the connections you make as a historian to the theater? Why, what do you love about it? What do what you? Love about it? Yeah. Well, I think for obviously uh, an early modern historian, which is basically a 16th, 17th century English historian, Elizabeth I Strain, think of that, um, one has to encounter Shakespeare and deal with Shakespeare, teach Shakespeare, think about Shakespeare, as well as his contemporaries. We share a love of Marlowe and Decker and many others, uh, playwrights. So the theatre for me was, was always a, a central part of the history that I did. What happened on stage in the period that I was studying seemed to inform my understanding of, of what was happening in that period. There was a little twist to this, and that is my interest in parliamentary history, which was... Um, partly engendered by just trying to understand how this society regulated itself, how, how it controlled itself. This is the time where the, the new poor law arrives in 1601 and where the society starts, political institutions start intervening in the day-to-day -day lives of people. And I was very interested to find out not about parliament as a political institution, but parliament as a legislative institution, and what these 452 men thought they were doing when they were passing laws, controlling, swearing, <laughs> dictating people what they should wear, uh, informing them on the poor law, setting up houses to correct the poor. The connection there with the theatre is, is funny, though, because when uh, 16th century contemporaries talk about Parliament and they try and explain what it is, they compare it to bull-baiting, bear-baiting, and the theatre. <laughs> and they talk about the space inside Parliament is like that. I, they're not really talking about the behaviour of the MPs inside, although one wonders sometimes whether that's also an implication. But, right. yeah. it's, uh, you can imagine uh, for an actor what a goldmine David is, because actors are constantly coming to me going, why do they do this in the play? Why are they wearing this in that scene? Why are they concerned about that? And whether it's a play by Shakespeare or an adaptation of a novella by Charles Dickens, you run into history. And a thing I'm always struck with is when I'm researching a play, I'm looking for the history book that's going to give me all the answers. It's going to explain why this happens in, a, in the early 19th century. And you'll go to a historian who will refer you right back to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol <laughs> as the, the resource and reference. So things like union workhouses, treadmills, poor laws, all the things that Scrooge gives generously to are one of our great references for it is how they were chronicled in the imagination of Charles mm -hmm. Dickens. And four years ago, David called me and said, oh, I've heard about this arc you're doing. Do you mind if I come and could I sort of see what's going on and be a fly on the wall? And he's been a very loquacious uh, <laughs> observer ever since. It's a sin, I have to say, loquaciousness. But Peter made a fatal mistake, actually, when he was, was talking about um, the arc, when he first conceptualized the arc. Because you used a buzzword, which for all historians is, is a key word, and, and that's the word interdisciplinary. He, he was assembling an interdisciplinary group, dramaturgs, directors, writers, and so on, actors, mm -hmm. school students, uh, sorry, NTS students, second yeah. year uh, 
acting students. But interdisciplinarity is something that's crucial for historians because when we talk about the past, when we try and uncover the past, when we try and engage with the past, we're, we're trying to speak to people who've lived many, many years ago, sometimes centuries ago. And we use a wide range of sources in order to uncover those stories, sometimes letters, sometimes poems, sometimes plays. We usually use those yeah. badly. But we also use uh, material culture. We use the surviving landscape. We use things that archaeological sites. We use a whole sorts of range of sources. That means that we have to be sociologists, psychologists. We have to be geographers, we have to be archaeologists. So interdisciplinarity and interdisciplinary approach is something that is very endearing for historians. So when Peter used that buzzword, I thought, well, there's no historian on that list. So why don't I just bounce him an email and see what happens? And and it worked. And I think what I, I discovered immediately in the theater was, which was somewhat of a surprise, is that whoever is in whatever we're, aspect of the theater we're talking about, the design team, the lighting, um, the actors, of course, especially, but yourself, uh, the dramaturgs, is that they're engaged in exactly the same activity that I am engaged in on a day-to-day basis. They're doing extensive historical research. They're trying to use an imagination in a sort of controlled way to put themselves back in time, which is effectively what we do as historians. And that that synergy, I think, was quite electric for me. So in in terms of what i get out of it it's a, it's a it's a it's a gloriously collaborative experience where i'm constantly surprised by the richness of the questions the the depth of the questions the number of times i have to shrug my shoulders and say i've never thought of that before that and only someone who's immersed themselves in the period to try and recreated on stage, I think, can come up with those questions. Well, an actor's concerns about history are interesting because they're not only asking, when was this law passed and who passed the legislation and what was the date? They're at the same time asking, how did I go to the bathroom? Mm -hmm. Why are all these people in Christmas Carol lining up with their uncooked Christmas dinners at a baker's shop to have them roasted? Why aren't they just roasting them at home? What does Bob Cratchit mean when he says a Christmas pudding is like a bake shop and a laundress living next to each other? Yeah, I can see some of your faces going, what does that mean anyway? That's where David comes in. Because we have to decide sometimes, do we translate that to a modern understanding Or do we believe that we can play it, understanding the logic of its time, to share that logic with you? Why did people line up to roast their geese they at a lined, baker's they shop? They lined up they because they didn't have ovens. They didn't have their own cooking facilities. So Why didn't they have and their they, own ovens? They couldn't afford it. I, most people are far too poor to have any of those sorts of facilities. So it's very common to take your special meat, if you have some meat, very rare that most of the population would have meat to cook, but they would even take bread sometimes down to the communal bakery to, to, to bake. It was a great way yeah. of, for bakers to earn money. So that sort of public-private, the, the sort of world, we, we tend to assume many things happen in private. And I think that's, in some ways, when I first came into the rehearsal room for, for Dickens, that was one of the things we had to dispel was, was the sense that we all have of the Victorian house, which is... Uh, you know, a, a gloriously secure house with a little kitchen, has some sort of outhouse in the back. We were dealing with, with the society pre 
Victorian in some ways. The, the Victorian England of Dickens is, is actually 18th century England. It's the, it's the England of Hogarth, if you know some of those etchings of Hogarth, the, the famous one on Jill, Gin Alley where the... Gin Lane, yeah. Gin Lane, yeah, yeah where the woman is, is, has dropped her baby. She's so inebriated. And that, that's the image, that's the London that Dickens knew in the 30s How, how many and 40s. people are living in yeah. London in 1843, well, roughly? It's, it's roughly about... Two million, two million three hundred thousand. Two million people. Yeah. No lighting in the streets. Not yet. No. Not yet. Uh, a police force. Just oil lamps, I should say. No gas lighting system. Police force instituted in eighteen twenty nine. So is it? A, and There's local constables and and officers. Beatles. There's Beatles still the Beatles and so on. Still the parish vestry officers to to range control. Um, it's a it's a myriad of local government of chaos in local government. It's, it's known as the Great Babylon. There's a wonderful book called Victorian Babylon about Victorian, er, particularly early Victorian London, before the gaslight system came in, before the drainage system came in. This is a city that, that is literally filthy, uh, 200 open sewers going straight into the Thames, estimated three 400 tons of sewage going into the Thames regularly. It's, it's a city okay. where... Um, this is the, the Thames, which actually is, is the place where you also get your water supply. So the sewage is going straight into the water. It's coming back up through the systems, through the pipes. Uh, clean water was only really instituted with, with, you know, with the great engineering achievement of the drainage system in London. I know this from my 1870s house in South London because that Victorian drainage system kept on backing up. Um, it was still <laughs> active. It was still it was still sort of working, but that was the great. You know, when we think of Victorian England, the the 50, the 40s, the 50, particularly the 50s onwards, the 50s and the 60s, the 70s, we think of the great engineering achievements of the railways, and we think particularly of the new underground, the tube that opened up and yeah. began in the 1860s. But in some ways, the two greatest engineering achievements of the Victorians were the new clean water drainage system in London. And drains still used today, still the system today. And the gas lighting system, which was... It, it wasn't used, too long you know. before Christmas Carol was written that there was a great cholera epidemic in Absolutely. London, right? Yeah, yeah 53,000 died of typhoid as well in one year. It's this, uh, they didn't quite understand how this worked. There's a wonderful doctor called Dr. Simon who, who knew, knew what was going on, or some many of the doctors did have ideas of what was going on, but they weren't listened to necessarily. And any attempts to reform ran into this myriad of local government, parishes, beetles, council, every, all sorts of different organizations, different committees. So it was very difficult to get anything done on a, on a citywide scale. So this is why in the 1840s they started instituting things like the Metropolitan Boards for Health and for other things to try and institute a London-wide system. You really do get a sense, say, in these uh, early Dickens novels of millions of people living in an urban place and trying to figure out how to make it work. How do you do that? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a city of ten what something like 10 miles radius. It's... In 1800, it had a million people. By 1830, as we're saying, two, it, that had doubled in, in about 30 years. By the end of the century, after the next 100, in 100 years between 1800 and 1900, it's, 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 it's increased enormously. Again, the huge pressures on, on the system. With the economy collapsing in the southeast of England, particularly agricultural laborers, um, there's, there's 
tens, not just tens, tens of thousands, but in some cases, 200,000 people arriving in the 18, in 1840s. I think it was 250,000 people arrived in London to find work. And where do they live? Where do they go? They live in tenements. They live in places like Gin, Gin Lane. Um, that neighborhood, there was a street that was surveyed, I think, in the 1850s, and they found, I uh, can't quite remember the numbers now, but just under 300,000 people living in 95 houses. 3,000 people living in 95 houses. So they, we're talking about houses that were... You know, if you think of Coronation Street, the opening sequence of Coronation Street, and you think of the two up, two down, two rooms up downstairs, two rooms upstairs, meant for a family. The surveys that Mayhew and others did in the 1850s showed that there were could be six, seven, eight families living in some of those houses. Who David's referring to is Henry Mayhew, who did an incredible study of London's poor and street people. He recorded all of the songs of the street criers who would sell oysters and sell meats and sell ribbons and sell brooms and things. He uh, spoke with costermongers and their family. He has a whole incredible section on costermongers. Yeah. The, the language of costermongers, the fidelity amongst costermongers, the yeah. religion, like every single thing in the world, and it's an incredible document that we have from this time. I think that's part of the culture, too, that the, the distress was so obvious by the 1530s and so evident to someone like Dickens who, who'd love to wander the streets and observe the same sorts of things that Mayhew was observing, that really by the 1830s there's, there's a huge impulse to change things, to improve things. One of those, one of the ways that's manifested is an extraordinary compulsion to record and create data, to create statistics. Part of the, the, the problem with having all these different governmental institutions is you don't know what the situation's really like. So sending people out with the, the new political economy we associated with Jeremy Bentham and an attitude towards centralizing authority, centralizing governance, centralizing the management of, of life. Uh, statistics are hugely important. So Mayhew's recording all of these things. He's also taking extraordinary statistics. You know, one th he, his calculations, he has a... I don't know how he counted all these things, but he calculated that one-third of London's population were unemployed. And one-third is unemployed. They have no work. They might get the casual day work if they're fortunate. He calculated that one-third were partially employed or casually employed, and one-third were employed. So that's the sort of social distress. Mm -hmm. He went down to the Docklands and calculated that there were 4,000 jobs in the Docklands, in Bermondsey and Wapping and, and Deptford and those areas. There were 12,000 people that he recorded looking for those 4,000 jobs. And one of the first actions in Christmas Carol is Ebenezer Scrooge tells Bob Cratchit if he continues behaving the way he does, he'll lose his situation. Mm -hmm. That fear is a huge fear, yeah. It, you know, it's amazing because what it does is it blows off any kind of nostalgic picture we might have about Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol being quaint, being kind of pretty, and people wandering about snow-laden streets singing God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen in a lavender frock coat. <laughs> it blows that... Mm which is a very Edwardian fantasy yeah. of this time, the drawings of Arthur Rackham and stuff like that, mm. heralded in the 20th century this kind of nostalgia for this time. 
Queen Victoria at the time of this is not the imposing, in her 60s, large empress of India of our mind. She's uh, 24 years old. She's a young girl who'd been brought up in ex like total seclusion. The government's really being run by her prime minister and people like Lord Melbourne and stuff are having their way. It's a very different picture, isn't it? It is a very different picture, yeah. And I think even our, um, our imagination, when we think of Victorian London, and, you know, to some extent, we're also influenced by Victorian Ottawa as well. You know, we have the greatest neo-Gothic architecture just up the road here um, as, a, as a tribute to the Victorians. We have some gorgeous Victorian churches in Ottawa. Yes. Um, but we, our image of Victorian Eng London in particular, but also England, is, is the, the sort of great classical architecture, the, the great neo-Gothic architecture that we see in the big cities like Manchester and Liverpool. We think of Trafalgar Square and that being laid out. But in Dickens' time, Trafalgar Square was basically a corner of, of two or three streets that were meeting. It was not quite open fields, but there were dirty fields around there. There was a coach house and an inn, and that was it. Uh, that sense of Victorian London, the beautiful laid-out buildings, the, the, the strong buildings, the sense of authority, the sense of dignity, the cleanliness, the Victorian embankment along the river, yeah. all of that comes in the 1850s onwards. That's all later than, than Carol's written, what, 1843. So yeah. we're dealing with... You know, that, that 18th century London that is starting to change and is coming under huge pressure uh, because of the, the economic crisis, because of the population increase, because of the massive immigration into London, because, you know, a, sewer, a system that was built for a city of, of, you know, fewer than a million is now coping with a city that's, that's got two, three million, then four, then five million. And the poor law, which is, you know... Yes, is tell us a little to, bit about, yeah. if you can, briefly tell us about the poor law. And it's right at the very beginning of Christmas Carol is when two gentlemen of charity arrive. And it's theirs, you know, you think of those two guys and you can often think of these happy-go-lucky sort of middle-class conservative guys walking around receive, taking up alms on Christmas for the poor. Well... I have an idea about those guys being much tougher than that. And they come in and Scrooge immediately asks them if the poor law is not in full vigor. Mm -hmm. And one of them says, yes, it is, regrettably. And in that exchange is a really fascinating history of struggle and... Uh, what is what was the poor law? Well, the poor law was, mirrors this this problem that London has. Um, London, a city that was built for a certain number of people, suddenly has two, three times that population in it. The poor law was created in 1601 to deal with a po poverty of a very small population, in which it was assumed the wealthy and the poor were relatively stable. It was for a population of four million people in the entire country. It had lasted, but now in the early eight, 19th century, it's, we're dealing with a country of 14 million people. So 10 more million people to deal with. And this poor law was breaking down, and it was also proving to be very expensive. It essentially was grounded on the idea that the poor could be judged in two, two ways. Some would be judged to be deserving poor, who would get poor relief. The other would be judged to be vagrants or vagabonds, and they would be punished and put to work in houses of correction. 
But the system was breaking down for all sorts of reasons. The burden on the system because of an economic crisis after the, the successful war against Napoleon, um, all of these uh, economic changes, the Industrial Revolution, weavers and spinners being thrown out of work, flooding into, in, into the uh, cities or the towns for, for assistance. Poor relief had doubled and then trebled the cost of it. And so there was a huge impulse not only to help the poor, but also to save money in helping the poor. And to save the, the reduce the poor rate was one of the major motivations. So in 1834, an act was passed called the Poor Law Amendment Act, which was amending the old Elizabethan law. And it did a number of things, but for, for our purposes, particularly for the play, the, the most horrific uh, consequence of the, the new poor law was to only give poor relief to, and particularly to internal relief, in other words, to give them help in, in a particular building, to those who are absolutely destitute. It wasn't just that you were poor, it was that you had to prove that you were absolutely destitute. And these workhouses were designed to be so appalling that you would never, ever want to go and end up in one. Uh, it would be better to be on a small boat designed to house 30 or 40 people and to be one of the three or 400 people packed into this little boat and leave from Liverpool to somewhere in North America in the hope for a better life than to end up in the poor law. 50% often of people in those little ships died on the way out of disease. So that's the, that's the risk people were willing to, to take. The poor law was horrific um, in terms of its creation of these workhouses. And what would happen if you did manage, you were so destitute and you convinced the poor law board that you deserved relief, you would go into these buildings and uh, you would be completely stripped of your clothes and they would be disinfected. You would be given poor law clothes. Um, you were fed enough food and enough protein. A lot of modern um, nutritionists have analyzed the poor law um, diet. Uh, you can actually even go online and buy a poor law cookbook now if you want, a workhouse cookbook. Um, but essentially, I, well, I brought some yes. to the cast, and, and the yeah. first day I actually brought them the, their, their daily allowance. Well, except for he the. Just put out, yeah. He just put out this crust of bread about that big. And a small piece of cheese. And he put it on the table and said to the cast, if you were in the workhouse, that's your allotment of food for the day. Unfortunately for them, I didn't bring the gruel that they, the gruel that they would have had at, at lunch because I wasn't going to make that at Scrooge's home. Scrooge's bedtime Scrooge is favorite. Bed, he loves it. And that's a wonderful irony that Scrooge is eating gruel in this play. But the, it was the monotony of the diet that was, was appalling. You had six ounces of bread, one ounce of cheese in the morning, same for your supper at night. You might get a, a 16 ounces of gruel, which might have some vegetables in it, might have some oatmeal in it, might have a bit of meat in it, particularly on Sundays. That was the good day. Uh, if they followed the menus that they were supposed to follow, and that was a whole other issue of cutting costs. People were supposed to get milk in their gruel. Often that was watered down, etc., etc. So the food was, was completely unappealing. It was appalling. There were, um, but it did actually not kill people. It wasn't starvation. Thing. The, the, the issue of the workhouse that really offended working people we have lots of petitions because when you have government going out and sending out commissions, of course, what you end up doing is getting people 
petitioning government back. And all and the Victorians were early Victorians, as the later Victorians were wonderful at keeping all this material. So we have all these petitions from people who are committed to the workhouse, who complain bitterly. But what they especially complain about is the separation of the families. Is that oh. a family would go in and the husband and the wife would be separated. They'd be put in separate parts of the building, separate rooms. Their yards would be separate for exercise and their meals would be separate. So husbands and wives would be separated. Even if there's cases, petitions of, of men and women who've lived together for 60 years as husband and wife, who are now so destitute, they are separated. The children are separated between seven, the years, ages of seven and 15, the boys and the girls are separated. And the young children are kept together, but separate from their siblings and separate from their parents. You're not allowed to speak to any other member of the family at dinner time, at prayer time, at work time in the yards without the permission of the, the guardian of the workhouse. It's, it's that that the- What does it sound like? Uh, you know? Sounds doesn't it? Sound, yeah, the concentration camps. I know. It's, it's a horrific, it and it's what people complained about bitterly. And they said, you know, we are not criminals. We have committed no wrong. We are just poor, and we are being punished by this. And of course, you can imagine the churches yes. didn't like this system in many ways because it was destroying the family. There lots of arguments that the families were being destroyed here. But it was that aspect of the workhouse especially. Apart from the horrible work that you did, um, women would be given old cables and hemp cables from the sea and they'd have to unpick them with their fingers and they do that for 10 or 12 hours a day. Oakum picking oakum. Men would be out um, breaking up stone for the, you know, the underside of the new roadway systems and the new drainage systems and the new embankment is, is that they need stone. So there are men out there working for 10, 12 hours a day breaking large large boulders into small stones day in day out it's um people breaking up bones for fertilizer so putrid carcasses would be dumped into the workhouse this is a bit off-putting i suppose but um and they'd be ground up it for is the, fertilizer. it's the world it's as the reality actors, is we have to embrace because you know charles dickens when he wrote christmas carol said a sledgehammer must come down mm-hmm. on the struggles of the poor of london that's was his intent. And what does it mean that we've turned it into this quaint, cute, sweet little nostalgic story? It's, is it, isn't it dangerous to walk around going, gee, it was so sweet, and I wish the 1840s was back. The good old, the good old you know, hungry 40s. It's yeah. not a shop window. <laughs> yeah. And it's what yeah. gives, it's the emotional, the transformation of Scrooge, the joy in the story. It gives it substance because it's coming from something real, not something just whimsical. And Dickens really was, was I think, very moved by the, the effect of all of these things on children. It's estimated about a half to a third of the inmates of workhouses were children. And oh. he was deeply David moved Copperfield, by that. David Copperfield, Oliver Absolutely. Twist, Little yeah. Dorrit. Yeah, it's all there. Moved by the schools, the ragged school that he just visited, yeah. the, the small uh, schools that he'd visited just before he started to write Carol on behalf of that wonderful Angela Coots, who, who poured a, a wealthy woman from the Coots Bank who poured money into these institutions. He, he's very moved by child labor. There's no child labor laws. There's discussions about child labor laws, reducing that. He's very moved by the mines, the sledgehammer. He wants Which, to argue that's against That's where the, does the ghost yeah. of Christmas present 
take Scrooge to hear the miners who labor in the bowels of the earth. Even they know me. There they are singing Christmas songs. There are three families in Christmas Carol that I think are interesting in lieu of this. And the first family you meet is Scrooge's nephew, Fred, and we uh, and all of their friends. And they are described. They live in a, a town home in London. They have uh, a cook, a parlor maid, and they have a chambermaid. Uh, they are gathered around a pianoforte. They are the rustling silks and velvets are described in essence and wonderful Mr. Topper and Miss Flora. And Scrooge tells us right away that they have no right to be merry because they're so poor. Mm-hmm. Then we meet the Cratchits. The Cratchits. Who, and he's called, as Scrooge's jest calls him Bob. No one else calls him Bob Cratchit but Scrooge. You know, call him Robert. He calls him Bob because he makes 15 Bob a week, and he thinks that's funny. Mm-hmm. And then we meet the Wilkins. And the Wilkins are a family of question. She is a laundress, and her husband is a spendthrift who is taken to debtor's prison because he can't pay. And I always think of him as sort of a macabre-like prototype. Mm-hmm. He's fa- he wears checked pants, and he has <laughs> dazzling buttons. And yet he's got no money and he's off to the poorhouse. What do those three families represent to you? Why, and they're all described as poor in the story. Well, I think it's, you know, one of the, the interesting things about the way Victorians were also trying to wrestle with the social change was to try and classify people. And we had the aristocracy and the upper class, the ruling class, and you have the middle class. And then you have this, this working class, which is this enormously elastic and huge range of people from Dickens himself described himself as initially his family was shabby genteel, right? He was shabby working class. You know, we, we still have this in England, the descriptions of the upper working class and the, or the lower middle class as opposed to the middle and the upper middle class. And we talk about the upper working class and the lower working class and or to use another way of describing it as a, I, my 16th century sorts, you know, that the, the, the lower yeah. sort as opposed to the middle sort. You know, it's about manners. It's about how you hold your handkerchiefs, how you hold your knife and fork. It's, it's these sorts of things that, that working class families um, focus on. And I think the three families represent different, this range of the working class. I think really the, the, the first family is, is middle class. It's yes. a clearly middle class family that is, as most middle class families because of the filth and the stench and the smell and the crowds outside, surrounded themselves with those, which what we do associate with Victorian culture, these very small rooms with flock wallpaper and pattern wallpaper with, with cushions. It's everything crowded with cushions and ottomans and the, the curtains are are hugely thick, like the ones right behind me. The lace curtains, it's sort of like a defense from the outside. Um, the Cratchits are poor, very poor, and but they're they're not below the poverty line. They're still able to to survive. They're the and Coronation Street. They're they, the four room yeah. house in Camden Town. Right. Yeah, two up, two down. You're basically going to be all right as long as there's not an economic crisis. As long as your boss doesn't throw you out of work, right. and you you don't end up going into into the very poor 
class, which is the casual labor class, which the last family represents, where you're desperate for whatever you can find and you're desperate for that casual labor. You're the one who might end up hanging around the docks hoping for one of those jobs, 4,000 jobs, 12,000 of you. Look at them. There's a lovely detail in that when she's with her paddle at the laundry. Mm -hmm. It's not her own laundry. It's a big copper vat and she's doing some kind of industrial one with her paddle. There's a passing reference to her adjusting her baby mm-hmm. on her back as she works. And yeah. she, she's 12 children, that character. Right, yeah. And I think this all comes <laughs> oh, from Dickens' man. own experience, right? From his, yes. his childhood. In 1822, his family moves from outside of London. And his, his father worked for the Navy, he was a clerk, um, like the Cratchits, and could easily lose right. that, that position. And um, Dickens ended up in Camden Town, in a small two up, two down. It, it was still yeah. fairly rural around Camden. It, it's certain, uh, there yeah. were fields between Camden and Kentish Town, which you ever go, you'll laugh at, because it's just completely not like that now. But um, Camden Town was a, you know, a g- genteel, working-class neighborhood. The family was running in debt. John Dickens ran up yes. debt. Um, the eldest daughter was going to the Royal Academy of Music, Fanny, so there's, that's expensive. Um, so Dickens is sent, uh, taken out of school at the age of 12 and sent down to a blacking factory down on the Hungerford Steps, which is down where Charing Cross Station is now, right by the river, 12 years old. His dreams of being a writer uh, seem to be dashed to him. Um, it's the end of, of his life as far as he knows it. And uh, Dickens ends up working, on making these little, well, he was wrapping and um, putting the tops on and the labels on these blacking bottles, which are for shoe polish. So he's putting little, an oil paper, piece of oil paper, a piece of blue paper, wrapping it around with string and sticking a label on it, little earthenware jars called bottles. And this for him was was terrible. He'd, his, he'd fallen from one of those, from yeah. his... Clark's class yeah. to this lower class to the the lower level family. This There's casual no security labor. when you're no in one security. of those classes that you're no. there for life unless you're security is a hugely important okay. word, isn't it? In this period, neglect and and security. Well, and one of the, I think it's funny and cruel and interesting is it was at this time that the height of fashion amongst the upper classes was to ape speaking like the working class. Mm. So you have Fred the nephew say, um, what use is Scrooge's money? He don't do anything good with it. And that kind of language was considered very uh, fashionable. And to drop your H's was a high sign of imitating the Cockneys. So you'd say, would you pass my at? Was a way of being... And to mingle sometimes. Oh, it's To wander the streets and observe. You know, yeah. Dickens himself did that a lot, occasionally with, with a constable or uh, uh, someone in tow. Just to, yeah. Oh, David, we could go on forever. It's so, so interesting. And uh, I thank you very, very much for coming today. And uh, we, we need to get you all to the Christmas carol that are going. Mm-hmm. And uh, so please uh, join me in th- thanking thank David Dean for being here today. That's all for this edition of the Interviews Podcast. 
send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to hintreviews at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting www.nac-cna.ca slash podcasts. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us in a free subscription in the podcast sections of the iTunes Music Store. Search on Hinterviews. If you'd like to stay in touch with news and updates from the NAC English Theatre, sign up for a free e-bulletin by visiting www.nac-cna.ca slash email alerts. You can also find us on Facebook. Become a fan of the NAC English Theatre on Facebook by entering NAC English Theatre into the search bar. Until next time, this is Sean Fitzpatrick for Peter Hinton and Company saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa.